You're listening to the first real episode of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. Be forewarned, a lot of this is about fundamentalist Christianity going more than a little bit wrong, but it is not intended as an attack on faith. It's about depression. If trigger warnings lowered rather than raised levels of emotional upset, I'd include one. But statistically, they don't, so I won't. Each episode is me explaining what was going on in my adolescent life that occasioned the writing of a song from my unreleased concept album, The Story of Peter Gray. I'll continue for the two of you who are still listening. Episode 1, Daddy's Crime. Disappointing everyone who enjoys excessive amounts of ado, without any further ado, first, context. This will take a while and be quite tedious to anyone who's read any of my books or who was raised similarly, but it may seem like something from outer space to others who may need it explained. If you already know all of the stuff I get into here, you might consider skipping to the second episode. I was born a few months after Woodstock and the lunar landing, though neither had anything to do with my conception. I was born the son of a strong-willed, blunt, opinionated, earnest, socially anxious, insecure gym teacher named Russell. He is the daddy in question in this song, the one crying. Any good country boy has to write at least one song about his daddy, and no doubt one about his mama. Sorry, Mom, I'll get on it. There's just never been that much drama between the two of us. Russell, though, had been born and raised in an obscure church system called by other churches the Plymouth Brethren. The Plymouth Brethren, of course, didn't call themselves that. They modestly called themselves humble things like the Lord's people, or the people of God, or the gathered saints, or the household of faith. Other people who weren't any of those things just created churches to suit their own preferences. Churches with names, too. Names like the Reformed Calvary Missional Power of the True Word of God Church, or the Pittsburgh Rapture Ready Towards the End of Days Thumb Twiddling Saints of Christ, or Radiator Springs Holy Spirit Chapel of Mercy, or Surge. Names other than Christ's own precious name, a name surely above any name people creating some church could come up with and think looked good on a sign. I grew up in this Plymouth Brethren group too. We weren't just a church, we didn't think. We were different. We hadn't simply formed a church the way one forms a charity organization or a small business, building the thing from financing on down to a compelling mission statement. We just did what the Bible said and left all that church stuff to other clearly less informed, obviously less serious Christians. Nothing we did was weird either. It was just what the Bible said. It was the other groups who were weird. Rather than imitate their voices or paraphrase their views, in this podcast I will on occasion make use of archival recordings of the Brethren Preachers themselves. Here, Albert Hayo, speaking at Smith Falls, Ontario in 1979, pokes fun at the idea that God wants anyone to form and lead a church. The missionary proceeds to found a church, to uh, select a name for that church, to usually choose himself as being the leader of that church. And along comes another missionary. He also carrying the same book, preaches the same message, and he gathers his converts into another church, bearing a name, the names that are familiar to us here in Canada, names honored and respected in the religious circles of Canada. They exist over there in India too. But the Hindus are bewildered by this. We were Hindus. And now, what has happened to those who have accepted the Lord Jesus? <laughs> They're divided up into this, that, and the other group, bearing these various names. 
which one of these do you represent? What should I say? Should I say, well, I represent this one? No. A Plymouth Brethren guy I spoke to recently flatly denied ever having been part of any Christian group whatsoever in his life, though he still worships in the place his forefathers did every week for swearing all other Christian affiliation under pain of being kicked out of theirs. Denying the name and membership in the group is the surest sign he could have given of being a committed, lifetime member of the Plymouth Brethren group. Roughly speaking, Protestant Christian churches could, and still can, be sloppily divided into groups that are mainly trying to be happy and ones that are mainly trying to be right. The one my dad was born into and was raising his kids in was definitely the latter. It was all about being right. You got status in the group by Bible knowledge, attendance, and abstaining from entertainment, not by making services contemporary and fun or tripping out on worship Sunday mornings. The hymns and the morals were Victorian, nay Puritan, and the Bible translation was older than that. This is what seemed respectful, proper, and normal to my dad and to us as well. We memorized big chunks of the King James Bible with its these, thous, and thuses starting before we could read and privately reading a chapter of it every day once we were old enough. We did this for God because we were certain he wanted us to. And how could we expect anything to go right in our lives if we weren't willing to wade through the these and thous each morning for him? Do you read the Word of God, dear young people? Do you read it every day? Is it the habit of your life? I want to just challenge you, if it's not, to make it a habit. When you get up in the morning, get up a little earlier. Discipline yourself. Get up a little earlier. I know it's hard to get out of bed in the morning sometimes, but discipline yourself. Get up a little earlier. Open this word. Let it satisfy your heart. You're going out into a world that's a desert. You're not going to find anything out there. There's going to be things that are offered to you, yes. But if your soul is already satisfied with the manna from heaven, you're not going to need to try those paltry things that this world offers you. You won't need to try. We read here, yea, he loved the people. All his saints are in thy hand. And they sat down at thy feet, every one shall receive of thy words. I've never understood why people find Shakespeare so challenging to get the basic gist of. I think they doth protest too much about something that is verily no big deal. People don't talk now like they did in the 1960s either. Thou became you, and doth became does, just like far out became sick. By the time I was five, my father was very much under the tutelage of the really devout elders in the church that didn't admit it was a church who would never admit to being elders themselves. Albert Hayhoe was a particular role model and the person dad most feared disappointing as to raising us any differently than Albert had raised his own kids, kids who were dad's age. Dad had started to get more and more serious about being an esteemed member of our Christian group. He wanted to raise us up right in the Plymouth Brethren, leading a notable, respected family in it. He was doing this for God, too, because he was dead certain this is what God wanted. How could he expect God to make his family and its members thrive if we weren't willing to even live a proper, Bible-obedient Christian life for him? The Plymouth Brethren group was fairly firmly anti-fun and believed unswervingly that the key to happiness was banking or investing moments of potential happiness for later. For much, much later. For once life was all over, actually. Heaven was where you invested happiness instead of spending it on wasteful nonsense now. So every time there was a chance at a party or show or celebration or something like that, what one was meant to do was 
not do that thing and do admittedly less fun Christian things instead. Life was one 80-year-long marshmallow test. True heavenly marshmallows awaited the saints in glory. And having Christian movies, rap songs, and holidays would have been cheating. That stuff was not pleasing to God because it was trying to be fun. The Lord Jesus is coming, and what are we doing in this world? Why are we here? We should be here as a testimony to the Lord Jesus. Are we just marking time? Are we just trying to make it as comfortable for ourselves as possible? But some people liked their coffee black, while others drank instant coffee with lots of creamers and sugars in it. Only one of those two really liked coffee, we felt. We were like that about Christianity. We wanted the real thing. It was all about reading the Bible, praying, and going out to church. We had church five times a week, including three times on Sunday, and serious Plymouth Brethren families did not have TVs or go to the movies or concerts or public sporting events or anything that was purely for our entertainment. Nope. We had church five times a week, Canadian winter, and never Christmas. Christmas had been a pagan holiday anyway, and Santa was, of course, part of Roman Catholic idolatry. The fact that our undecorated homes always seem to have presents not wrapped in Christmas paper for us to open on or around December 25th each year was purely a coincidence. We did not say Merry Christmas. We didn't think Christ was in Christmas to begin with, and then there was that troublingly Catholic word Mass in the word, and we were not Catholics. The thing that really strikes me now, rooting through a bucket of tapes my father and I recorded of sermons preached in our non-church Plymouth Brethren Meeting Hall Gospel Room building, with me often setting up mics, getting levels, and pressing record age 9 or 10, is that a large number of phrases in the Bible had been freighted with a crushing weight of extra Brethren stuff, literally adding to the ideas originally on the page in the Bible itself. This went on throughout your childhood, starting at birth, until any Bible verse quoted at you, or even read or memorized by you, could be more of a delivery system trigger, or code for something entirely else. So the phrase, the word of God, no longer simply meant the Bible. It also didn't mean God talking to Jonah or Jeremiah or something. It meant the entire body of traditional brethren use made of the Bible to outlaw movies, entertainment, music, Christmas, pianos, guitars, or organs in church services, modern translations of the Bible, sex before marriage, smoking, wine with meals, swearing, voting, and a host of other things, essentially adding up to a dismissal of pleasure itself. But the poor prodigal had to learn that the pursuit of pleasure brought remorse, regret, and grief. And remorse is the devil's pay. There were, of course, we all knew, no brethren rules at all. Just like there was no brethren church we were going to five times a week, in all my life, I've never sat down in a church and heard a sermon. Have I missed something? And Albert Hayhoe and his brothers were certainly not elders or pastors or evangelists or missionaries or anything of that kind either. Albert Hayhoe would certainly never record himself pronouncing judgments as to whether members were or were not, in the case of my grandfather, allowed to get divorces without being kicked out for going against the Word of God. I feel that even though the laws of Canada might permit divorce on the grounds of having been separated for three years, this certainly is not a scriptural liberty. In fact, as you and I know, some of the grounds for divorce that are now granted 
are so far from Scripture that we can have nothing whatever to do with them. Scripture permits only one proper ground of divorce, and that is unfaithfulness on the part of one or the other of the partners. By this, the tie is broken. We have not felt that there is any just cause for such a suspicion, nor is there any proof whatever that such guilt took place. And at the present time, I feel that the uh, arranging of a divorce has been entirely without scriptural warrant. Yet, whenever someone said, The, the Word, Word of, of God, God, for all of us, it meant no Christmas, no instrumental music Sunday morning, no swimming or sports on Sundays, and a host of other things every single time. Yes, musical instruments were invented long before a redeemed people sang. They were invented by Jubal, a descendant of Cain, who went out from the presence of the Lord. So man surrounds himself with music of the world in a vain attempt to provide happiness. But the born-again child of God has a melody that comes from the heart. And it wasn't just with that one phrase. The entire Bible was shot through with encoded terms of this kind, put to this use, and drummed into our developing personalities. When we heard verses about breaking, breaking of, of bread, bread read to us, we were to picture the people in the Bible doing exactly what we brethren folks did each Sunday morning in the same correct way, with the same purposes and attitudes, maybe even the same outfits in Bible translation, and not what they may in the Bible have actually been doing and thinking, meaning, and feeling. Many mundane, carefully cherry-picked ordinary activities or phrases in the Bible were duly supercharged with whatever spiritual significance or symbolism that the brethren read into and imposed upon them, just as if that was intended when the words were first written. Then, our having been empty vessels to be filled with brethren interpretations of everything, whenever we read the Bible aloud, if we had been those receptive receptacles, unquestioning hearers, every word of the ancient text appeared to be backing up all of the brethren's Victorian views and interpretations, interests, emphases, and foci. An empty vessel. Oh, dear brethren, are we empty vessels? As one said before, the fullness of God waits upon an empty vessel. It really seemed like these men had memorized pretty much the entire King James Bible, so who were we to argue? It was like the Bible was a code that only we brethren could decode, and all of it added up to the comforting realization that we brethren were the whole package. Our teaching and practice was the right one, and not in any way in need of examination or revision, updating or correction. We were in the home stretch, waiting for the rapture, and we were just supposed to hold the course. The whole Bible was code that we had the key to, and it all added up to Jesus, Jesus is coming, coming, so don't, don't party. party. How embarrassing if he returned to earth that very evening only to catch us up to heaven from watching Star Wars at the drive-in or seeing the Eagles play a hockey arena. Walking, Walking with, with the Lord like Enoch or living to please the Lord or going, going forth, forth unto him outside the camp bearing his reproach. 
or the Lord sings, or the things of God, or pleasing him, were presented to us as Bible code for going faithfully and eagerly out to brethren meetings and not having a television or Christmas tree. I'm speaking now, dear young people, to those who belong to Christ. And you have been separated by God from the rest of the world. The word separate in the Bible, and our term Christian separation, were code for living in the proper manner of a brethren person and not just some regular worldly one. We couldn't go to worldly parties because any event at which we wouldn't feel welcome to preach to the unsaved sinners there was a place we would not, of course, feel welcome. We were only to frequent and feel comfortable in rooms we'd be free to preach in. And we were to preach and leave illustrative pamphlets in the doctor's offices, restaurants, grocery stores, buses, and gas stations in which we found ourselves. Beloved young people, as I look around in this world, I see the friendly hand of invitation stretched out towards so many of you. And that which they offer you may not seem to be that which is in itself wicked or sinful or wrong. But in loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose face they spit in hatred, whom they nail to the cross of Calvary, can you, can I, reach out and join hands with those from whom loyalty to our blessed Savior would cause us to walk in separation? The expression, the, the honor and glory of the, of the Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, Christ, often seemed to mean something more to do with the reputation of the Plymouth Brethren group in question, and whether it would appear to others looking on that it had acted with integrity in administrative decisions, such that it was keeping up with its position of being more biblically observant than mere churches were willing to be. In a day of departure and ruin and confusion, as we have in Christendom today, No, there's connections that contaminate. There's things in this world that contaminate. Not only moral questions, but doctrinal questions contaminate. And ecclesiastical connections contaminate as well. Every time the Bible spoke of communion, or the church, or the one body, or the bride of Christ, or the people of God, or the Lord's children, or something like that, we knew it meant us, and not the other churches. They might technically, theologically, be part of some of those expressions, but in terms of their practice, we knew that everything they said and did excluded them from any meaningful connection to those phrases. You know, it would be an absolutely worthless waste of time for us to come here together this evening to express our own thoughts on these important matters. But it's such a wonderful and precious thing, beloved brethren, to be able to open up the Word of God and realize that we have in it all the light and all the wisdom that we shall ever need until we take our last footstep here and enter at last into the wonder of the Father's house. Something I think that really reveals the role of using the precise wording of the King James Bible as a packaging and delivery system for behavior-modifying indoctrination is that without the exact wordings in the 17th century King James or KJV version, it didn't exactly work anymore. From very young, we'd sang the KJV, memorized the KJV, had family Bible studies with the KJV, read a chapter of the KJV in the morning most days, put little KJV plaques on the walls of our homes and businesses, 
and had Brethren Doctrine poured into us affixed to the wording of the KJV and the KJV alone. Oh, how thankful we should be that we can pick up this precious book, and although it's 1979, yet we know that the divine author of this volume knew all about you, all about me, and all about the footsteps we have already taken, and all about that which would surround us in 1979. And all of those trigger words and concept packages didn't resonate if you changed the wording being used to shape and direct our thoughts and feelings even slightly. In fact, other interpretations suggested themselves. For example, if you were taught that the Bible says where two or three are gathered together, presumably by God, our divine gatherer, in the name of the Lord Jesus, but then the 1979 NIV translation just says where two or three gather, well, despite this being a perfectly accurate translation, now our point about us being more scriptural than people in mere churches is harder to make. We called ourselves the gathered saints, the ones gathered by God. Gathered was one of our magic words. I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm gathered to his precious name. Our repeated insistence on the divine gathering of our group and our group alone being an act of God himself would suddenly get downgraded if you read the NIV translation's wording, which merely has us gathering because we choose to do so ourselves, like any church. Much of our doctrine and biblical interpretation hung on a single word here or a two or three word phrase there in the King James Version. For this reason, many of our older men taught us that modern translations of the Bible were satanic, like the Who and Bon Jovi. I was five, and totally hooked on the TV which was hidden in our house. The Bugs Bunny Roadrunner Show, Scooby-Doo, Batman, Spider-Man, Gunsmoke, Emergency, Hee Haw, The Harlem Globetrotters, Fat Albert, and Sonny and Cher. The little black and white TV that pulled me into its stories was in a discreet corner in the spare room where it could easily have a blanket tossed over it to hide it from the prying eyes of visiting church folks. Ones who didn't likewise indulge in the glass teat in their own homes, that is. It was kind of like having a bong in the house. A lot of Brethren homes had a wardrobe in them that had nothing to do with storing clothes nor going to Narnia, but was a handy shelf to put a TV on that had doors in front of it that closed, hiding the TV from view. Well, one day, my dad sighed, unplugged our little gray TV, and carried it out to the curb and set it down there to be picked up by the garbage men. This is what he knew deep down that God wanted. And that was it for screens in our house that weren't there to keep out the mosquitoes. I grew up pestering kids at school for plot summaries of each week's episodes of The Incredible Hulk, The Dukes of Hazard, and The Six Million Dollar Man. I would also occasionally get caught guiltily watching television at other people's houses or standing in front of TV displays in shopping malls watching silent television. It was all about the stories. We had our stories, and they were all in the Bible. We didn't listen to pop music because we had our songs, too, and they were Victorian hymns. We knew which ones were more fun but we also knew which ones were okay with our fun-hating God. How, How can, can you, you listen, listen to Neil Diamond, Diamond or Kenny Rogers, Rogers watch Star Trek, and, and then expect to have any love for the things of the Lord? My parents would ask me. How indeed? Spider-Man, the Lone Ranger, and Conan the Barbarian were way cooler than Samson, Joshua, or David. This is why comic books soon got burned and banned in many of our brethren homes as well. Tintin and Asterix were okay, of course. Even Archie and Richie Rich, for some reason. 
but nothing with any characters who were too overtly heroic, let alone superheroic. It was trendy in general to be against violence in children's entertainment if you were a parent who'd been alive during the 60s. Getting pianos and anvils dropped on your head and falling off cliffs or exploding outright didn't count as violence in most parents' minds, of course. And so, over the years, our family went along, increasingly establishing itself as the up-and-coming new one in our local church, though we lacked the money and social class to really keep up. We had a chicken coop instead of a cottage, for one thing, and our cars were all second-hand. Often bits of them were mismatched colors. Very few of them had four hubcaps on at any given time. My dad read books of Brethren Bible Doctrine, mainly from the Victorian era, and got more and more involved in Bible discussions and church services. Like Quakers, the Plymouth Brethren have no official ministers or anything like that, so all of the members can participate in the services and church upkeep and decisions. Well, all of the adult male members, in good standing, that is, especially ones with certain last names, known for generations of faithful abstinence from culture, modern fashion, and worldly entertainment. Status wasn't earned in a single generation, and it certainly wasn't earned by getting official credentials from a Bible college associated with some church. No one who ever spoke at a Brethren event I attended had been to Bible college, nor would submit to the unscriptural, unorthodox, merely human insights offered at one. It wasn't what God wanted. Becoming an officially titled pastor who'd gone to Bible college, running a one-man ministry dog and pony show at some human-created church, was proof enough for us that you didn't take the Bible very seriously at all. To this day, every time someone tells me he or she is in or has attended Bible college, I always coyly ask them, when was the first time you read the whole Bible? They pretty much never have, which certainly doesn't help to dispel my ingrained anti-Bible college prejudices. Nor does the annual number of young people who enjoy youth groups so much that they go off to Bible college only to find that exposure to too much Bible soon results in their atheism. We read a chapter each day as a family because that's what God wanted. I remember how much trouble my mother had keeping my little three-year-old sister sitting quiet without fidgeting with toys or crawling away and keeping a little knit tam on her head while Dad read to us from the Proverbs. She had been once again dragged out from under the kitchen chair where she had crawled in boredom and misery as he read. Dad was perhaps a bit too pointedly glancing at my sister when he read, the sluggard does not plow after the autumn, so he begs during the harvest and has nothing. I am not a slugger, little Debbie protested, tugging unhappily at the head covering all brethren females had to wear when doing anything religious. We laughed, and Dad had to explain to her that a sluggard is a lazy person who lies around in bed when it is work time, and so the word of God was wisely warning us against being like that. I was seven and so very smugly aware of what a sluggard was. Endless Sunday school hours had been spent on the Proverbs with us. The Hive of Busy Bees children's book had taught us to be hardworking. I'm not a slugger, Debbie repeated, clearly not into hearing any more of Proverbs that day. I'm starting to really worry that maybe you don't love the Lord Jesus Christ at all, Dad worried out loud to her. She burst into panicked tears at that point, no doubt thinking of an eternity in hell. Like I said, we grew up with the Bible. Dad made a new sign for the front of our nameless unchurch, advertising all of those services held each week. Well, apart from the Sunday morning service, of course, which was meant to be an entirely private showing out of the death of Christ to the world, so was omitted from the sign. Pretty much no one new ever came out to brethren services, really. Just us, the faithful, sacrificing present leisure for future blessing. Dad also made a big wooden box for children to put their scripture searchers in. Scripture searchers were kind of like monthly pop quizzes about the Bible one had to fill out and put in the box. 
Albert Hale's sketchier brother Charles had these completed assessments mailed to him from around the world for him to grade, and he would send you letters if you owed him a few months scripture searchers. A guy I used to know used scripture searcher and Charles Hayho nag letters as rolling paper. Dad put the kids' names on the big white box so they could push a tack into it under each month to track their progress. Having him make a label with your name on it to stick on the box was a commitment. Besides the label maker, he'd bought recording gear from Radio Shack and made cassette tapes of all visiting guest speakers and kept them in a tape library in the meeting room basement, made copies and dropped them off for elderly folks who were called shut-ins to listen to. These poor folks were unable to get out to church five times a week and couldn't listen to everything that went on until my father showed up with the Plymouth Brethren's Greatest Hits tapes. He did more and more and more Brethren stuff. My sister and I, his children, did less and less and less kid stuff. The rules not only grew exponentially, but we were supposed to self-generate the rules before our folks needed to do that for us. And if we didn't know what the rules were, we were told what God wanted. None of the rules were written down, of course, because if you asked any of us, we would have been very quick to tell you that there were no rules. My sister knew that she wasn't ever allowed to wear trousers or makeup or jewelry or cut her hair short or diet. I wasn't allowed to indulge in almost anything that nerds like and had to dress very business casual, carefully avoiding all current styles and trends. It doesn't sound like much, but in those days it was considered quite the thing to have a white handkerchief sticking out of your pocket, and I'm afraid I was one of the first ones to do it. And Brother Watson <laughs> knew very well that this was just a sign that I might be heading in the wrong direction. So sure enough, as I might expect it, after meeting that dear man, because he loved me, came up and reached out his hand with a big, broad smile, and as he grasped my hand with one hand, he tucked the handkerchief in with the other and said, glad to see you at meeting, Albert, and away he went. Why did he do that? He wasn't trying to be rude. He wasn't trying to be funny. He loved my soul. And every little thing that he saw about us that he felt might lead us in the wrong direction, he loved and he cared enough to speak to us in such a wise and loving way, too. I love the memory of that, brother. I mostly didn't get to go to other kids' houses if they weren't Plymouth Brethren, except Curry across the road, because Mom had babysat him, and he came out to Sunday school for a while, and he lived right across the road. I couldn't even go on band trips despite being the first trumpet. Some other brethren people's kids were trying cigarettes and beer, fooling around in cars, and even sneaking out to the movies, NHL games, or rock concerts. Unlucky ones ended up on TV or the front page of the newspaper, cheering at these events. My father believed that if a man was going to teach and preach and serve the other brethren, his family had to be in order. As Abraham had commanded his family, so my father was careful to do as well. He felt that many of the other brethren men's families were not in order. He didn't know how they felt comfortable teaching us about the Bible when their own children didn't obey or believe a word they said. If their kids didn't listen to them, why should we? Now, my father was hardly the strictest man in our group in terms of family rules. We kids only had to look 80s business casual, not George McFly working mission control for the lunar landing like some people's kids. Nerdliness was next to godliness in many minds, apparently. I may have been a nerd at heart, but I didn't want to look like one. As I said, ours wasn't an established Plymouth Brethren family with generations of Brethren lineage. If your family had a long-respected Brethren pedigree, it was surprising how lax you could be with your kids and still keep your status. 
Some kids with certain brethren last names had their moms dress them like the Revenge of the Nerds poster, of course, so I felt lucky that I could dress in a more or less normal way so long as it wasn't terribly edgy looking. There was a strict understanding that none of us would try to look cool. More about the daddy who was going to end up crying. My father came from rural poverty and was the first and I believe the only kid in his family of eight to go to university, just for one year and just to get qualified as a gym teacher. He had to take a philosophy course and he said philosophy warped the brain and confused you about what was right and wrong. None of dad's blood relatives were likely to preach or teach about the Bible. His father, in fact, had been excommunicated for life as a wicked person for divorcing his wife, my grandmother, who had undiagnosed mental health problems. Divorce wasn't allowed unless you'd gotten cheated on and then you couldn't remarry until they died anyway. That's how God wanted it. My grandfather died before his wife did, so he died a wicked person, under discipline. I will too. More on that later, much later. All three of my dad's brothers got divorced too. If he believed in divorce, I'm sure my father would have as well. Only two of his four sisters had married men who were as active and invested in brethren meetings as he was. So my dad had no wiggle room as far as local status seeking. He couldn't ride on any relative's coattails. It was all up to him and him alone to start a modern brethren bedrock family. And he was trying hard. He was overcompensating, in fact. He really thought this was how things work. You don't break rules, you work hard being useful, and you just naturally earn status and respect along with all the added responsibility you shoulder. God is pleased, and so are his children. People see that you mean what you say and know your stuff, so they respect that. This is what he actually thought, that there was no cheating, that no one had a right to be angry with you if you were correct in doing what God wanted. This is, this is what he really thought. Now, there was a group of my dad's peers, also with teenage and young adult kids, who were, as far as brethren went, modernizers. They were nicer, warmer, more relaxed, and had a lot more fun than we did. They wanted to maybe not worry so much about having TVs or getting tickets to NHL games or David Bowie concerts. They didn't think having some partying or atheist teens at home necessarily meant shutting up at Bible study. They were experimenting at home, too, with 60s and 70s, rather than Victorian, Christian music, and modern translations of the Bible, as well as praying aloud at brethren meetings with you and your pronouns, instead of the traditional thee and thou, thy and thine, wouldst, hast, and didst, that all of our hymns and Bible translations still hadst. If praying with thee and thou was good enough for our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, then who are we to do differently? Rhetorically asserted old Mr. Clark at Bible study. No one even knew what to say to that. There was a disagreement, and who was right about what God wanted? When change of any kind was discussed, our group had the usual right-wing traditionalist why faction paired with the usual left-wing progressive why not one. The author G.K. Chesterton had things to say about a man finding a fence while hiking and thinking it should be removed, though he didn't know the reason behind why it was put there to begin with. The traditionalists thought like him, though he was a Catholic. Were we about to have our own tiny version of the Protestant Reformation in our brethren groups worldwide? An enormous church split was about five years away. These middle-aged guys, in part to better appeal to MTV and Pac-Man generation youth, would try to give the group an unwanted, century-overdue ecclesiastical makeover. It was mullet time for everyone. The hardliners would silently, stubbornly resist, and the modernizers would leave with about 60% of the population worldwide to form a splinter Plymouth Brethren Light group, leaving mainly elderly and extremely traditional folks behind. What fun there was, or any hope of any, left with them. 
the brethren remainers would console themselves by solemnly declaring that those who had brethren brexited were now kicked out as wicked people. There would be almost no one left. No one middle-aged or younger anyway. It all just went to prove who took their Bibles more seriously, didn't it? Years ago on Facebook, someone asked some of us, as folks who'd been there when, what exactly had happened in 1990 and 91 to cause this huge church split. I was there, so I explained that it was mainly progressive middle-aged people who wanted to change and modernize the group, clashing with a few conservative middle-aged and mostly elderly people who resisted change of any kind. There was definitely no lack of Machiavellian backstabbing and slander and manipulation going down, but that was the gist. Someone else who had been there when asked me in a Facebook comment, is that really what you think it was all about? I simply asked him to name one other thing that it was also about, and he couldn't. Didn't, anyway. Others might say that one or the other side caused the division by seeking power and stirring up drama. Also true. Both sides did that. It was in Canada, but it was like America, left and right demonizing one another while feeling justified in doing so. If the other side disagreed with us, were they even really Christians? One had to wonder. We followed the Bible. In the decade before all that went down, though, two things happened. One thing was that Albert Hayhoe, our local group's unofficial pastor and teacher, an elderly missionary who was the main pillar holding up the tradition and Victorianness of the group, died suddenly. Several other old folks died around that same time, too, as old folks tend to do. A small contingent of Jesus people from the 70s started to come out, now that they had families and wanted something less structured and traditional than, say, the Anglican or Presbyterian churches, but more traditional than their long-haired, bearded, guitar-playing pastorship, long before all that came back and was thought of as retro-Christian. They knew church wasn't supposed to look like Woodstock. That wasn't what God wanted, of course. They just knew. They wondered about speaking in tongues and modern translations and so on, and what place that had in our group. They all had televisions. Albert Hayhoe having died, this left my father as the main outspoken voice of tradition and piety and abstinence from entertainment, with a rising tide of modernism pouring in the doors. Most of the traditionalists his age were stubborn, but generally silent about their views. They just kept not doing what they'd always not done, and had nothing to do with even discussing doing anything else. My dad, though, would tell you what he thought and why, and you'd have to get your Bible out to have the discussion. So all the new people wanted to talk to him. Suits were bought and beards shaved. Guitars were put away to collect dust in closets. Rumors flew about how traditional, binding, and restrictive our brethren group was or wasn't after a series of private Bibles Out conversations with my dad. Now I finally come to the specific event I wrote the song about. It behooves an English teacher to remind you, dear listener, that most stories start with an inciting incident. Normally, stuff goes wrong. Mentors may die or be defeated. The kingdom is in danger. Normally, the protagonist's comfortable world is in peril, or actually comes crashing down, starting his own adventure. Often, on the road, he will learn that nothing was what he thought it was, and no one was quite who they presented themselves to be. Almost exactly ten years after my father had carried our TV out to the trash, sighing that he'd no longer be enjoying Kojak, Columbo, and MASH, one of his peers from the church showed up at our No TV for Ten Years house. He was a key voice among the modernizers and would end up leaving us to spearhead the Brethren Light group. He sat down on our couch, Mom ushered us kids out of the room, and busied herself elsewhere, and he basically told my dad that the group as a whole were no longer into what dad was selling at Bible studies or at services. Dad didn't speak for them when he prayed, and they didn't like what he said the Bible had to say either. 
They didn't like his contributions in general. He was giving so much to the group that it was making him unfairly important, they said. He cared too much about what happened there, so he tended to get what he wanted. Most people didn't care as much and didn't necessarily know what they wanted, so they didn't tend to get it. They had a list of grievances. Dad thought he was just doing what his God wanted. They thought maybe Dad should take a step back. Now, my dad has never run a riding lawnmower, chainsaw, or whippersnipper in any but one of two modes, full throttle or off. So he didn't know how to tone it down or take it easier. This wasn't a negotiation either. It was a warning. My dad didn't manage to satisfy the man that day. This opened the door for bringing out the big hammer. The next week, there was an ominous phone call. We could tell it was a really weird one, just listening to Dad's side of it. My dad got off the phone very upset and didn't want to tell us what was happening. My mom got it out of him before he left the house, though. My dad is, and always has been, one of those people who is argumentative and stubborn but extremely sensitive and vulnerable emotionally and apt to secretly suffer depression and suicidal ideation. Same. My mother was troubled to hear what was happening. My dad had been summoned to present himself within the hour to the non-church building for a secret meeting. He was not to tell anyone. He was not to bring anyone. When he got there, there would be a select group of middle-aged men in attendance who were angry with him. The folks who might have supported him, including most of the older folk, were left entirely out of the loop, and he was to help ensure it stayed that way. That kangaroo court had been carefully cherry-picked. Dad drove off like he was going to the gallows. I was 15 and couldn't drive there, so I went across the road to Curry's house, the non-brethren home with the TV in it, cigarettes, and beer. His mom, Sue, was working evenings in a facility for the mentally handicapped, and she said she didn't mind dropping me off at our church on the way. I was worried Dad might kill himself or something after the dressing down he was certainly going to get. I knew how brethren politics worked. I was 15, after all. I knew not to expect fairness or mercy or forgiveness, not among Christians. I knew it had already almost destroyed Dad even to just get called to present himself for judgment. I knew this was worse for him than being fired from a job or getting divorced would have been. This was about him serving his God, and by extension, the Lord's people. All of that was in jeopardy. Along with the function he thought he was serving, they were going to erase who he thought he was. Sue Scott dropped me off at the non-church building, and Dad's car was there, unlocked, so I climbed into the back seat and hid, afraid of getting him in further trouble. Trouble at a Plymouth Brethren Church can mean getting excommunicated for life, which means being banned globally from all Brethren social events, including weddings and birthdays and so on, not being allowed to speak up in Brethren Bible studies, or even eat in the same room with Brethren people. I'm told Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons sometimes do the same thing with their non-conforming members, Orthodox Jews and strict Muslims as well. In Brethren circles, it's called being under discipline, which in theory is only supposed to last a brief period until you say you're sorry. But in my lifetime, and geographical area at least, it was a way to permanently get rid of drama. After all, the Bible says, put, put away, away from, from among, among yourselves that, that wicked, wicked person. person. So that was it for you. In fact, the Bible says to not even eat with wicked people. Now, that verse seems to probably be talking about a guy who was having sex with his stepmom, and the church got in trouble one epistle later for not letting him back in soon enough. But still, it's what we use to justify shunning people. They were wicked people, and not in the sense of wicked awesome. Wicked in the sense of hashtag me too'd. Wicked in the sense of cancelled. Wicked in the sense of toxic and over. You didn't want to get any of that on you or stand anywhere near it. The sun set as I lay in the back seat of the big old car, and it got dark. 
Seemingly hours later, my dad came out, a broken, slumped figure, and got heavily into the front seat and sighed. I sat up, and he said, You nearly scared me to death. How did you get here? I told him how I'd gotten there, but not why I was there, and he seemed to understand anyway. I felt deeply protective of him in that moment, and I think he felt that. We drove home, and when we got there, he talked to mom, us kids listening from the next room, and he cried. My dad never cried. Dad was always the figure of strength in our house. He'd tried more than anyone I'd heard of to follow every rule our odd little church had or implied, to sacrifice everything we were supposed to sacrifice, to attend every meeting, read every book, discipline his kids, and do all of that stuff. He'd made a wooden paddle to spank us with and wrote Bible verses on both sides of it in magic marker. He didn't want us to fear getting randomly hit in his house. He wanted us to know that we were never going to get randomly hit in anger like he had been growing up. He wanted us to know that he was hitting us because God wanted him to, because he loved us. Like I said, we were raised with the Bible. When we were bad, it was beaten into us. Dad had made what most would call his church his entire life. He'd traded our Christmases and childhoods for this church too, and now this church had turned around and vindictively broken him into pieces. For following the rules too much, for doing and saying what he thought God wanted, for doing and saying what Albert Hayhoe and others had always done before they died, for not knowing how to play the game socially and politically. Was he even allowed to attend and worship the next Sunday, he wondered? They said they'd let him know. They let him stew for a week, and the next Sunday, they said he could attend and worship, but was to keep silence. If anyone asked, they were told that Dad had volunteered to keep silence. Dad was told that if he didn't volunteer to keep silence from then on, he would be kicked out entirely and shunned. And so my dad did keep silence, for long after his accusers had left in the enormous brethren split. He never recovered. Depression descended upon him more than ever before. He tried to read Bible doctrine books, but if he wasn't going to need to know any of it to contribute to Bible discussions, it all seemed pretty pointless to him. He lay on the couch and in bed depressed and didn't get up and work outside anymore. He was a gym teacher, so on Saturdays, summer holidays, and at Christmas break, he normally worked outside all day long. But now, instead of spending the days tossing hay, mowing lawns, plowing snow, fixing cars, and cutting firewood, he'd sleep and lie on the couch all afternoon, back turned to the room, occasionally sighing loudly. He was deeply focused on a world of hurt. If we made noise, he'd shout at us. People stopped visiting our house entirely. He was on medication, and it didn't seem to do anything. And how about it now? Shall we just get real practical about this? Is there allowance made for the things of God in our homes? Is there the daily reading of the Word of God? Oh, I tell you, we're taking an awful chance if we neglect the reading of the Word of God in our homes and where there's children involved, how they need, dear ones, to be exposed to God's precious Word so that their hearts are fortified against all these vicious attacks of the enemy that would seek to, to defile them and to undermine their faith and to rob them. At first, family Bible reading continued, giving Dad one last space where he was the teacher, the expert, the one in charge. But all it took was 12-year-old me catching him getting some of the Elizabethan vocabulary a bit confused and asking if perhaps there was another way to interpret what we were reading, and my father snapped the family Bible shut forever. I had ruined that too, he told me. This was really the end of our whole family having a future in the Brethren movement, but we believed what we'd been taught since we were tiny, which was that God certainly did not want us attending anywhere else. Years later, when the men who'd churched over my father had gone off to form their Brethren-like group, we didn't even leave with them. God wouldn't allow that, we didn't feel. 
We knew this for sure. Going to a church would have been wrong, and staying home from our non-church equally wrong. It would have been rebellion against the Bible. We had to show up the five times a week, and usually we silently did. Our family voice shut down. It wasn't just my dad who'd gotten canceled. The rest of us had too. The men who'd done this to my dad continued to be my youth group leaders, my teachers at school, my family doctor, and the people we continued to buy our car and house insurance from. I'd like to tell you that nothing like this happens in other Christian groups, and that it's just a freaky Plymouth Brethren thing like being forbidden to swim on Sunday or have a Christmas tree. I would like to be able to tell you that, but I can't. When people asked what was wrong with my dad, or why he suddenly didn't speak up at Bible study or tape record visiting speakers or teach a Sunday school class, basically wanting to know what had, to put it bluntly, happened, I wasn't supposed to say, and we were scared. These were Christians we were dealing with, so it wasn't like with regular folks. When I got my nerve up, and I tried to explain any of it to anyone, it was all so complicated and hard to believe that I found it daunting. I tried, though, like I'm trying now. This was the first time I encountered the whole blame the victim thing. Maybe it wasn't handled perfectly, and they shouldn't leave him hanging like this, but he got in trouble, and that doesn't happen for nothing, people said, uninterested in details. Our unchurch was one of those places where being vocally happy with the status quo was expected of all of us. And the Lord wants us to be happy all the time, not just some of the time. Being discontented with any of it made everyone discontented with you in return. The world is full of places like this. I was desperate to talk to others who understood firsthand what our family had been through. Thing is, going through that stuff has a way of making people stop showing up at Christian events and stop talking to Christians. A lot of them become atheists. I'd have spoken to anyone I thought had gone through something too, but they kind of disappeared. If I went to a youth camp, chances were they wouldn't be there. Chuck Girard, a contemporary Christian singer I wouldn't have been allowed to listen to back in the day, wrote a song two or three years before my dad got into trouble, begging Christians not to shoot the wounded, saying, someday you might be one. Of course, he's singing about Christians who have gotten wounded outside church circles by making bad life choices probably involving sex and substance abuse, and not Christians who haven't, but rather have gotten character assassinated within their churches for strategic power reasons, all as part of the competitive piety pageant they hold there weekly. I never heard that song back then, of course. I didn't listen to modern Christian music. When I eventually started to listen to pop music, nothing but the real stuff would satisfy me. I accepted no Christian substitutes. More about that in future podcasts. A couple of years into Dad's decline, I would tell my parents that I, too, was suffering from depression. What do you have to be depressed about? Dad demanded from the couch on which he was lying, sweaty and miserable. You're a teenager. You get everything handed to you. What do you have to worry about? Sometimes I think I might kill myself, I told him quietly but firmly. Not if I beat you to it, he snarled and rolled over on the couch to turn his back to us again. This song is about that time and about all that cheerful stuff. Makes you just want to sing, doesn't it? And attend church and hang out with some Christians? I got my sister to sing the song with me. It had happened to both of us, after all. I got the best blues guitarist I could find in Ottawa to play a solo on it for me. Thank you, Trevor Finley. This was one of the first songs I tried recording in a studio with session players and so on. I had no idea what I was doing. I'd messed around with a cassette four-track, but this was out of my league entirely. I didn't know the bass player or the drummer or how to communicate with them. 
Chris, the very young studio engineer, did some very tasty electric rhythm guitar for me. I ended up with a song that was a bit too long and too repetitive. I loved that I'd scored Trevor Finlay's lead part, and I liked too much about this version to just start over entirely, though I'd learned a lot in the intervening time. So, decades later at home, I sliced and diced it, shortened it, replaced the drums, redid most of the parts, and tried to make it a nod to some of my favorite country southern rock influences. I can't just do a note-perfect imitation of every band I like, but I let my appreciation of Johnny Cash, The Eagles, and Leonard Skinner push my song a bit in their musical directions. My sister isn't often up for recording music, but on this one, first she and I made a pretend church choir, just the two of us, though our own church didn't have one of those. After watching a documentary about the Eagles, I layered in my best go at some Eagles-style harmony over the existing backing harmonies. As a track on its own, and starting off the album without this grossly inflated podcast episode tacked right on the front of it, I needed to make the song set the stage by starting with quirky domestic sounds from my childhood, including a trip through my parents' actual LP record collection, imagining if this song happened to be right in there, with Roy Rogers and Dale Evans sing hymns, great stories from the Bible, Ralph Platt's The Birds Sing His Praise, and Sing Again with Little Marcy. Generally, it's a Frankenstein-together mishmash of a song that breaks down in the middle to represent what happened to my father and, by extension, our family, then it resumes with the acoustic guitars slowed down in an old cassette machine, proceeding in a style much more me than anything else. Hi, happy timers. Want to hear a story? 
Here's one you'll like. Mary had a little pig. Now, children, if you will sit quietly and listen, I'd like to tell you a story that was told to me when I was a little boy.
So much hurt inside. All he did was speak his mind. All he did wrong was he tried. Religious competitions, the most vicious war of all. No forgiveness and no mercy, and you made you stand to fall. His outlook. Was a rigid one, but why this attack? When I see their holy faces, it brings it all back. It happened and it filled up my feelings with black and scowl, but inside. I am crying, crying. 